so you were introduced you were introduced to space law by reading a portion of a chapter in an optional reading assignment for a night class yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah at least that was my story that that i discovered it by accident and and i go well this is it for me i've, I've decided <laughs> Welcome to the Astro Esquire podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by Chris Johnson. Hi, my name is Chris Johnson. I am the Space Law Advisor at the Secure World Foundation. I also teach Space Law at Georgetown University Law School here in Washington, D.C., and I serve as a faculty at the International Space University where I teach space law and policy. Excellent. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Uh, first question, do you consider yourself a space lawyer? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, I do. Um, you know, the, the role that I have is different from other space lawyers you're going to talk to who wait, maybe they work for industry, they work for companies, or maybe they work, um, you know, with, with, uh, space agencies or on behalf of governments or in foreign ministries. Um, but you know, the work that I do, uh, day in, day out is concerned with space law. Uh, I write on it, research it, comment on it publicly and uh, in written statements. And uh, this is what I am concerned with and many aspects of space and space law. Um, so, yeah, I am a practicing space lawyer, but I work for a non-governmental organization, um, which is concerned with space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space and preventing conflict in outer space and acting as a convener of meetings to get stakeholders in the room to share their concerns and to find common interests um, to keep spa outer space uh, used sustainably and also, uh, you know, focused on using space technology and space capabilities for human and environmental security on Earth. So there are not many NGOs that, that focus on space sustainability. Um, and I think we're the only one that is purely focused on space sustainability. Um, but hopefully in the future, there will be more and more avenues and roles that experts in space law can play. Excellent. And we'll dig into space sustainability in just one second. But taking a step back, um, you talked about you not being the same type of lawyer as maybe some of the other guests on the podcast, other people who practice uh, at a private firm or they are in-house counsel at a company or whether they represent the government. So in your role at an NGO, what does space law mean to you in your position? So, I mean, we look at... It's primarily international law, although there is a, the national component, national space legislation, legislation, and and often U.S. national space legislation. But I really, it's mostly focused on international space law, the Outer Space Treaty, and the subsequent treaties, and other international instruments which affect the space domain. And it's really looking at that and seeing what is there, what is the content, what are the rights and obligations of international space law, what are the gaps and areas of uncertainty. Uh, that we can find in international space law. And really, um, even deeper still, is there kind of a normative background or principles of space law that 
assist us when we reach the limits of what can clearly be stated about um, international space law. When you look at the Outer Space Treaty, um, it is not filled with gaps, uh, but there's so many uh, uncertainties involved in it. um, just because it's a treaty on principles and it's limited in nature and it was drafted 50 years ago, um, that we look at it and say, well, uh, is there enough space law here to, to really know what can be done and what cannot be done, what's permissible and what's impermissible? Um, uh, and yeah, my work is you know primarily looking at the, the content of international law and seeing how that affects behaviors in space, especially behaviors which may impact the long-term sustainability of space activities. So not too much purely focused on, say, commercialization or space exploration or the telecommunications industry, but more focused on how those activities have the externality, the, you know, the added-on effect of how they affect space sustainability um, for, for the present and for future generations and future uses in space. Yeah, you make an interesting point there that there are a lot of overlapping activities in the space domain. Um, There's uh, national exploration, but there's also commercial development. Um, And then you also talked about the fact that all of these activities are sort of pushing, as you said, the limits of the space law treaties that we do have. And you talked about examining the ambiguities and the gaps. And I guess my question for you is, are those ambiguities a bug or a feature of space law? Hmm. I mean, I think that some of those some of those gaps that we can find or uncertainties were were intended to be placed there. That they were intentional. They were known that there would be limits on 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 what the issues mean. And some of the gaps in space law only arise because of developing technologies. They only arise because we have so many more non governmental actors and private actors in outer space, and so many novel activities that are on the horizon. Um, You know, the drafters of space law didn't envision the extent of commercial uses in outer space, and they certainly didn't envision space debris removal, satellite servicing, manufacturing in space, um, you know, commercial space stations, long-term habitation of space, and all the more futuristic activities that we can do in outer space. They, They didn't imagine those things. And the language that they wrote governing activities in space um, reaches its limit and we go, well, there's nothing in the Outer Space Treaty that, say, prohibits this activity, nor is there something that clearly permits that activity. So what do we do now? We only have these vague principles, um, you know, the Article One freedom of exploration and use, and that exploration and use is the province of all mankind. We only have the vague limits of, um, you know, Article Five astronauts shall be regarded as envoys of mankind and given all possible assistance. We only have the the... I would say the vague limits or the, the hard limits of um, national of, of attribution of non-governmental activities to the state actor and, um, you know, the liability regime for physical damage and the really vague limits in Article 9 dealing with due regard to the corresponding interests of other states and what harmful contamination is or, or the need to consult um, under Article 9. That's all we have. And how do you say, how do you look at an emerging activity like space debris removal and say that it's either clearly prohib- uh, permitted and regulated by um, the Outer Space Treaty 
just as as well as you can't say it's clearly prohibited by the Outer Space Treaty, it's simply not addressed directly in any clear fashion. So we have a treaties, um, a treaty on principles, and then emerging technology, emerging activities that are not clearly addressed and regulated. Some of these things, I think, when you when you look into the drafting of the Outer Space Treaty, they were intended. They said, let's refrain from from um, or let's leave it at this. Let's just say that astronauts are envoys of mankind. And even if they're conducting military activities, they're still envoys of mankind. And we'll leave it at that. And then, you know, uh, 50 years later, the rise of, you know, commercial, uh, let's say commercial um, astronauts, commercial tourists, and the possibility of a, you know, space corps, space force. Does that Article 5 astronaut envoy of mankind obligation, is it sufficient or is it limited? Do we need to update it? Do we need, uh, and what's the best way to update it through national legislation, national action and state practice, or through a new international instrument, you know, an updated astronaut agreement that gives clearer guidance. Um, You know, as I lecture about space law, I always point out that, you know, the astronaut agreement expands upon article five, the liability convention um, expands upon Article 6 and 7. The Registration Convention expands upon Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty with jurisdiction and control. And that's where we leave it. Um, you know, we may need um, further instruments which expand upon Article 9, due regard and harmful contamination, uh, or other other provisions may need to be expanded on, um, including, say, Article 4's prohibition on nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. Is there a limit to that? Do we need a new international instrument that goes further in making space sustainable? Um, you know, it's a. I think a lot of people who practice space law, especially the more the more academic ones, feel as though they can merely look to the treaties and interpret the treaties successfully using the rules of treaty interpretation from the Vienna Convention on the Law Treaties and come to an interpretation and go, I, I have the answer. Article 2 means that we definitely can mine asteroids. And mean, meanwhile, someone else who's also quite smart will look at Article 2 and say, I have an answer. Article 2 means we definitely cannot mine asteroids um, because we want, you know, these practitioners and academics want to have an answer. They want to be able to say, I perform the the... The, the rules of treaty interpretation, I've applied them, and I have an answer, and it is this. I always am more modest in my conclusions about the, the interpretive result and, and say, you know, I don't think the answer is clear. Or maybe there's no, no answer whatsoever, um, saying that space law neither gives a green light of permission nor a red light of prohibition, but maybe a vague signal, a yellow light of it's not certain, but it's not outlawed. Or maybe no light at all, no um, no indication as to an activity's legality or illegality. This is the more modest conclusion, I think. Well, there's also a difference, I guess, to um, the most supportive reasoning behind, as you called it, the academics approach is that you have the law that you have, and until you write or enact new laws the laws that you have are the basis for your conclusions, right? Yeah, that's true. But then on the other hand, there is the idea of state action, or maybe even the idea that you don't know what the law is going to be until somebody attempts something, and that actual 
action forces people to interpret and react, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, which I think maybe is your approach to it. You don't know what the, you can't guarantee what people's reactions, what states parties reactions are going to be to a certain activity, maybe until somebody does it and states parties are forced to go on the record about their opinion on something. Or if they take the super diplomatic approach and issue no opinion, sort of reserving the option to do so later. Yeah. So we've mentioned the commercial interests. We've mentioned scientific interest in space exploration. I think it, we always have to, you know, remind people of the the, the national security and military interest in outer space and how many of the things that we do in outer space are against a backdrop of space as some type of militarized domain. The good news that I have for everyone is that the more commerce happens in outer space, the more that space exploration and basic space sciences happens in outer space, the more space telescopes and, um, you know, human crewed space stations, um, the less that outer space is merely a military domain and the more that it is uh, a shared domain for many, many activities. And therefore, it kind of reduces the risk of uh, you know, it being seen as purely a military domain. Um, and and I, I don't know what will be the driving force for the next few decades of what happens in outer space, whether it's, um, you know, military uses of outer space or whether it's commercial uses or scientific uses. Um, but I, I certainly hope that, that um, yeah, that it's commercial uses and scientific uses that, that set, the, set the rules. Um, and, and keep space as a, as a domain for peace. Well, let's dig into that then for you. You said that you, you love this stuff. You love what you're doing right now. How did you originally get interested in it? If you could trace back your personal history, when did you first start on this path to being the space lawyer you are today. Certainly. So, you know, I mean, I was not good at, not good in the sciences or even particularly interested in the sciences when I was in high school. I did take physics and we watched Cosmos, um, Carl Sagan's Cosmos in my physics class. I think it was every Friday. And that was amazing and awesome. And I loved it. And of course, you know, uh, my friends in high school watched Star Trek, um, you know, Next Generation and uh, the original series. And, you know, you, of course, love these things and they're, they're, they're really, really cool. But, you know, I was, when I was younger and I still am interested in, you know, I like fiction and philosophy. And it was, I remember reading um, the essays of Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon was, you know, if we were to meet someone like Francis Bacon today, they would be someone who works, I would say, at the State Department but in the nighttime and on the weekends as a philosopher, because, um, you know, Francis Bacon, you know, worked in international affairs and international relations for Queen Elizabeth. But then he also like, you know, developed the the foundational tenets of empirical science and, you know, testable and observable methods in science. And, you know, the what lesson I learned from his essays, and then I, I always recommend the essays of Francis Bacon, is that, well, how would I put it, you know, if you are good and interested in language and logic, if you're good at language, you can become a novelist. But if you're interested in applying your skills in language and logic to the real world, 
on a day-to-day -day basis, you can go to law school and learn how to use logic and you learn how to use language to affect the world around you. And so that's why I went to law school. And, you know, deeper in there in the, in the essays of Francis Bacon, he talked about a future, uh, you know, outside of the, in, you know, after, after the Industrial Revolution, after the Enlightenment, a, a world that was governed more by science and reason than by super, superstition and religion. And so he had these great visions of a future where science changes all of our lives and changes the world around us. Um, and so that's, you know, of course, like this incredibly aspirational vision. So I, that always stuck with me at the back of my head that, yeah, the, the reason that we use language and logic is to make the world better. It's not merely to entertain ourselves. Um, it's to make the world better. So when I went to law school, I did not study space law. Um, I did not study even international law, uh, but I, I, I always found so many classes in, in, in law school, particularly the, the more challenging a class was, the more interesting it was for me. I mean, I really, really enjoyed um, constitutional law and constitutional history and uh, took really extra classes on constitutional history and philosophy of law and what damages are and remedies. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, I, I, well, I worked in New York, but in no way related to international law. It was more about corporate and securities law, but I took a night class on international law. Um, and so the book I read was Akehurst's Modern Introduction to International Law. And that was the first class I ever had in international law. The guy who taught it was a law of the sea professor. He knew uh, maritime law. And in one of the chapters was a, one of the chapters that was not assigned for class was on aviation and space law. So when you're living in New York and, you know, uh, I was working literally in the building next door to the New York Stock Exchange um, doing, uh, you know, trial preparation and litigation in the financial services industries. Uh, and you're reading at nighttime about space law. It really seems absolutely um alien and foreign and novel and interesting to what you, what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And I just wanted to learn more about it. And so, you know, I, I just in my spare time read a little bit more about space law and I came to a couple conferences. I came to the Galloway conference here in Washington, DC and met some actual space lawyers, people who actually did these things. And the fact that some, the idea that someone could have um, a life and a career uh, doing this as opposed to doing like corporate law or tax law um, was just just thrilling. It was like these people are, you know, they're lawyers, they get to do stuff and they also get to talk about really super fascinating and visionary um, topics. Uh, space lawyers and everyone in the space industry is always looking towards the future and thinking about what technology is going to rise, what activities are going to do, what mission is going to go, uh, what rocket is going to launch. They're always looking to the future um, and they have this vision of the future and, uh, and uh, they're inspired by what the future holds. And I think that that's, you know, why people get involved in the space industry because uh, it's fulfilling and it, and it, and it's like um, it becomes part of their identity that they just, they live and breathe thinking about space and it's so thrilling to them so you were introduced you were introduced to space law by reading a portion of a chapter in an optional reading assignment for a night class yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and there was about 
that was like 2007, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I had, I'd, you know, like I said, I really liked uh, Cosmos when I watched it in, in high school and I watched Star Trek and, uh, you know, I, but I, in terms of like, you know, people who actually work in the space industry, like I'm from Michigan, no one works in the space industry. No one thinks about the space industry. Um, there may be a few people that know something about like astronomy in Michigan. I never <laughs> took any astronomy classes. People who are go to engineering school in Michigan, they think about automotive engineering. They, they don't think about, you know, um, uh, astro-aeronautical engineering or even aeronautical engineering. So it's just totally outside of what you, um, what, outside of what I was ever even thinking about or exposed to. And I think actually there's something really important there that as opposed to trying to get kids into something and pushing a lifestyle on them, they're going to resist it. But if they discover it by the, for themselves, they're going to love it even more because they discovered it for themselves and they feel lucky that they discovered it. Oh, I got lucky that I just discovered this field and I'm going to go deeply, deeply into it. I, whereas if it was, if it's pushed on someone, Oh, you should really get into this. It's awesome. They're going to be wary of it because it's someone else's recommendation. So, I mean, that's why, uh, yeah, at least that was my story that that I discovered it by accident and and I go, well, this is it for me. I've I've decided. <laughs> and advice that I've seen other folks in the space law field, you know, more senior people give younger folks is, you know, if you want to be a space lawyer, become a lawyer first. Go to law school. Uh, graduate, pass the bar, get admitted somewhere, work in, learn the basic skills of working with clients, drafting, researching, writing, persuasion, um, you know, learn whether it's corporate law or, or property law or, or, um, you know, uh, telecommunications law, learn some type of traits. And I, I've known people that, you know, they, they started working in the space field in the transactional arena or telecommunications, frequency coordination, and then an opportunity arises that's still in the space law field, but quite quite distant from that. It's over in the security field, and they just have to continue moving around uh, and slowly build their competencies up. If because because the motivating factor is is space and space law, it does require significant, I would say, hardships. You know where I've, you know been away from my family on Christmas, on Christmas day, on multiple occasions, you know, I've been, you know, living in a different continent on Christmas day for my family. Um, you know, I've, you know, miss missed major events in my family's life. You know, my, my you know, wedding anniversaries and weddings, cause I happen to be elsewhere on the planet and can't afford to come home. And, uh, that's not pleasant, but sometimes it does happen, um, that there's hardships and I, and I, and this is just my story. And I know that other people have not only face those types of hardships, but even greater ones and even more parallel journeys, you know. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we, I have already had a range of um, trajectories uh, from other interviewees that I've had on the podcast. Um, some people who have been practicing for 20 years. Um, a couple of people who've been practicing already for, you know, a few years and like yourself, we're looking for something more fulfilling. Uh, and some people who 
were very lucky and knew <laughs> knew already when they were in law school. Yeah, that's um, great. And managed, and managed to get it out the gate. But a lot of times it is starting with that that networking um, that often comes by doing internships and uh, you know unfortunately unpaid internships as well. Yeah, that's right. It's true that some people work for a few years and then cross over to the space law arena because they worked you know elsewhere in um, a government agency or um, they just happen to be asked to start looking at space matters as part of their portfolio. Um, and there's also other folks who, you know, uh, I don't want to say get lucky, but they ha have an easier time securing permanent employment and, and starting their career off. Everybody, everybody's path is so different. And that's especially true for space and especially true for space law. Because as I said before, there usually isn't a traditional on-ramp to work in space law. It's whatever you can, wherever you can, with whoever. But the thing that is the same across all of those opportunities is networking, get to know people. Uh, and you've already mentioned the Galloway Symposium in Washington, D.C. Um, and there are a lot of events and a lot of organizations in the U.S. and internationally to get involved with. Yeah. And so for me, that was, you know, offering to co-author papers, uh, you know, uh, assist anyone who's writing stuff, um, getting my name out there. Other good advice was, you kind of just have to become a known quantity. Oh yeah, I know that guy. He knows what he's talking about. That person's competent. And then as opportunities arise to, you know, write stuff, to be interviewed, to be on panels, to serve in groups, um, you slowly get closer to being considered for those things. So it was never my, my aim to say, for example, be in the, this Milamos group, but at a certain point, it, it, my name was, you know, people were brainstorming to who to invite and they go, oh, we should have him. I, I've seen him speak. I've, I've, or I've read his stuff. He, he, he would be, um, he would be of assistance to the group. So as with anything in life, if you are, if you can be helpful for other, someone else's undertaking, um, then you're, they're going to bring you on board. Yeah. And using your reference to becoming a known quantity, that was my strategy when I was first in law school, uh, my first year, I was like, I'm just going to attend as many of these, especially free events as possible, just so that my face at least becomes recognizable. And people always think of me as like, oh yeah, he belongs here because mm. he's yep. at every other event. So why wouldn't yeah. he be at this one too? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's how I started out with that. So you've already talked about what you're involved in now. You're working at the Secure World Foundation. Um, you gave us a pretty good overview of the sort of consensus building uh, that Secure World is involved in, in different areas. Um, you specifically being involved in the Milamos project, but from these vantage points, uh, from your experience, what is the biggest misconception that the public has about space law? Hmm, I really don't know. I think it might be something like, that it's a lot more thorough and clear than it or than it actually is when you get deeper into it. And then maybe it's also, or maybe some people don't even know that it really exists. So yeah, that, let's go through it. Probably most people would not even imagine that it actually exists. And then when they find it out, maybe they imagine uh, that it regulates, I don't know, um, the citizenship of astronauts <laughs> on the moon or something like that. Yeah. Like something very, very 
futuristic. Yeah, space law has a, a checklist already in place for colonies declaring themselves independent of Earth. Yeah, or we we know exactly what um what the voting procedure is if for a moon village, you know, like. <laughs> or what the you know the, the the housing regulations are for a moon village and that would that would probably be the second order of misconception and i think beyond that maybe when they get deeper into it they would go oh well it's obviously certainly clear you know you just read the treaty and apply the treaty and and it's and it's definitely clear but then you know lawyers have to explain well maybe it's not so certain uh you know i don't like giving that answer of maybe it depends but it's more like <laughs> I don't know. It, the, the, the treaty is uncertain. Give me a scenario and then we can toss, then we can tease out what, what is certainly known and what, what is, we can only assign probabilities to. <laughs> don't worry. You're, you're already not the first person on this podcast to use the phrase. It depends. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And then that sort of ties in and you sort of answered this question already earlier. I usually ask people, what's the biggest misconception within the industry, within the community of space professionals? And you talked about some of those people also believing that there is a very clear cut and definitive answer to a lot of questions, um, a lot of hypotheticals in space activity. I think that, you know, it takes a while for you to understand how these, how the, you know, the commercial sector, the scientific sector uh, and military sector all overlap and you cannot or you one shouldn't just be focused on fostering commercial activity or fostering deep space human spaceflight missions to the moon or mars um, without taking into taking into account all the other stakeholders and all the other concerns of you know military uses scientific uses um and exploration and and, and uh you know commercial uses um, that they all intersect and they all should have some type of say. And then I think also is outer space is a realm where it doesn't it doesn't easily fit in with common sense. It's difficult to say, you know, um, even notions of say like self defense in space. When you, it's because a domain where things are moving at you know what is it like seven seventeen kilometers a second or orbital velocity, um, things are moving so fast. And yet it's a domain of microgravity. And yet these orbits are so very, very large that all, you put all of these, all these uncommon anti or counterintuitive constraints on what's happening in space that it's so difficult to even apply common sense understandings of how you can respond to things. You know, when, when you, when I see, People propose that the U.S. should have, you know, the ability to respond to lasers in space or shoot things out from space or have defensive capabilities in space. They, that, that thing doesn't conform with the nature of the space domain where things are very distant but moving very fast and it's a microgravity environment. And therefore, all the physics that you may think that, that seem intuitive to you are simply not at play in the space domain. So it's difficult to like conceptualize, you know? Yeah. I, I remember I was a big fan of the movie gravity when it came out, it also came out while I was in law school and I actually had a space law society event where we talked about orbital debris issues, but we were not orbital mechanic students. Uh -huh. So, uh, you know, talking to Dr. P 
pace at the Elliott School of Space Policy and hearing them pick apart that movie, um, I was like, well, guys, you know, the movie's not meant to be totally realistic. And they're like, no, I mean, come on. They have a scene where somebody speeds up to catch up with a space station. And they're like, uh-huh. that's not how things work in orbit. If you speed up, that means you fall faster. It's counterintuitive to <laughs> motion on Earth, right? Yeah. And so it's like, thanks. I'll use that the next time somebody asks me and I can also condescend to them that, no, I'm sorry, that movie was not, that fictional movie was not super realistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So from your perspective, then, does the future of space sustainability look positive or negative? Hmm. You know, I think it's, um, I was, I was lecturing about this, that this is what I was talking about in class yesterday. If, if the, the space law regime that we have was developed essentially by two global superpowers, the U.S. and the USSR, during a time of Cold War rivalry between these two global superpowers, and therefore it has hallmarks or vestiges of the time that it was drafted and the geopolitical tensions that it was drafted. Space law would look a lot different if it was drafted 50 years earlier or 70 years earlier when, let's say, the British Empire uh, was the global superpower. If, if, if it was the British Empire in 1920 that was getting to space first and setting the rules there, the, you know, the space law regime would look a lot different. Um, we have evolving standards of, t- you know, evolving ethical standards and where we get the law from. And where law from comes, this idea of um, natural law, of, you know, the law reflects and enshrines and codifies deeper notions of what is good and what is right and what is ethical and moral and what is permitted. And those notions evolve across time. So, you know, the, the very early notions of sustainability that exist in Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty um, you know, in the 1960s, this notion of future generations and sustainability was still emerging and like inchoate and and nebulous. And they knew they wanted to put something in there, due regard to the corresponding interests of other states is all they could really, really reflect. And now, uh, you know, in 2019, 193 member states of the United Nations so many more actors in space, so many more diverse activities in space, there's emerging trends. And we have deeper notions of sustainability that, and sustainable development. We know that sustainable development takes into account the needs of the present generation and of future generations. And it introduces a type of time element, future generations, and the needs of future generations. It asks us to imagine what future generations will need to do, what interests should be left over, what what resources should be preserved for future generations. That is something that they probably didn't imagine, you know, 50, 75, 100 years ago. I think that for that reason, this idea that we have evolving and broadening notions of what is equitable and what is moral the sphere of who we care about and what interests we care about uh, grows with each generation. It gets broader. We care about more and more people. Um, you know, we care about, you know, human human rights all over the world. We care about, um, you know, 
animal rights. We care about the environment. We have ombudsmen for future generations. These things make me uh, hopeful for the future because it says that future generations will be wiser and more compassionate and more ethical. At the same time, there is what I said before, this idea that conflict is inevitable. Even if conflict does happen in space, I think there'll be an outcry and a resistance and a, a regret that it happens. Maybe we'll look back at 2019 as, you know, or, or the first 60, 70 years of space activities and say that was a golden time of space activities because conflict didn't happen. And, and, and these people in the future will say, well, conflict now happens in space and it's, it's accepted that we can wage conflict in space. So, but that's not a total loss because I do still believe that there'll be these evolving ethical norms and, and beliefs where we do realize that, you know, going back to Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty, exploration and use of space is the province of all mankind. This, these notions that we have deeper that space itself belongs to humankind, that space is the common heritage of mankind, that somehow the people that live on this planet own and have dominion over resources in space, I think that will actually evolve to where we understand that we don't own the world. We don't own space. We don't own celestial bodies. In fact, we're a part of it. It is uh, like a scientific uh, revolution, enlightenment idea that humankind is removed from the natural world. And that understanding is fading away uh, where we realize actually we're a part of the world. We are a part of nature. We're not separate from it. And of course, that means that outer space doesn't belong to us. It means that we belong to it. We belong to the space domain. We belong to the natural environment. And we're mere actors within it and not the only actors. And our interests are not the only interests to be reflected. Wow. Well, on that hopeful viewpoint, I want to say thank you, Chris, for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Thank you.